Right. So, uh, just by way of introduction, I should say something about our community history. Uh, you will probably have noticed we have this very interesting icon at the very top of the deesis uh, behind the altar. It is, uh, I, I forget the, the Russian name. Uh, I don't speak Russian, and so uh, I get a little confused when, when uh, trying to remember that. Uh, in English, we call her Our Lady of the Protective Veil. And we had this commission, do you know the name? Pokorova. Thank you. Uh, we had this commission especially because um, we've had it happen uh, many occasions that there's been some crisis in the community and uh, through the intercession of Our Lady it's been resolved. So like some improbable good news will arrive on a feast day of Our Lady. Uh, most recently, I think, uh, you know, we, we had this very improbable situation resolve itself uh, after we made a, uh, this was when we were only four in the community, but we made a pilgrim, pilgrimage uh, to the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. Of course, the church is dedicated to the Immaculate Conception. And uh, we thought we were going to have to move. We didn't think we could stay here uh, for various reasons. And uh, after we made our pilgrimage, we got back and uh, boom, the whole thing was resolved uh, through a whole series of weird coincidences. Uh, so realizing that we need protection, that we need help to live the monastic life in a city and the modern world, uh, in honor of Our Lady, we commissioned this uh, icon as a reminder to ourselves to ask for her help. Um, now, I thought what I would do today is actually in terms of the church's devotion to Our Lady and our understanding of her role in theology, uh, I would just start at the beginning in the sense of the beginning of the Gospels and uh, the historical person that we know as Mary of Nazareth. Uh, we should always be aware when we read the Gospels that the evangelists uh, were not ignorant of history, nor were they uh, incautious about historical reality. Uh, I don't have any reason to doubt that they reported things accurately, but they were always more interested in what historical things could reveal about the spiritual world, about what God is doing. And so the, the things that they select to tell us about Our Lady, about our Lord, about his family, about his apostles, about the church and the acts of the apostles is always with an eye toward showing what the Holy Spirit is doing revealing the true meaning of things so that we know how to read our own lives. We can look at our material existence, our embodied existence, our social existence, and see the mystery behind it. You know, not just stop with, uh, it's nice that, uh, uh, you know, we all get along or something like that, but actually Christ is with us. As I said, it would be possible to say, oh yeah, we had a bunch of coincidences and so we didn't have to leave. We're still here, but... Our conviction is that it's Our Lady's intercession that made it possible. Uh, and uh, monks have, have long had a, a particular devotion to the Virgin Mary, and so it only makes sense that uh, uh, she would be taking an interest in helping us. Uh, so when we look at the Gospels, start with the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Mark is probably the earliest Gospel. He doesn't say very much about the Mother of God. Uh, 
I don't believe, again, this is because he was ignorant of it. Mark doesn't say a lot about a lot of things we know uh, from the other Gospels. Mark is a kind of breathless story of uh, Jesus' career and uh, mostly about his passion and resurrection. About half the Gospel is the passion. Um, Matthew and Luke, who perhaps follow Mark's narrative, fill it out a lot. They both give us the, what we call the infancy narrative. So they both tell us that Jesus' mother's name was Mary, uh, that she was betrothed to Joseph, and that she conceived a child by the Holy Spirit while they were betrothed, but before they came together to, be, uh, to live as husband and wife. Um, marriage customs in this culture at the time meant that they were actually technically already married. Uh, we say betrothed because we don't have this custom, but they were married, they just hadn't moved in together yet. There were still sort of negotiations to be worked out. Um, so both of these gospels attest to the virginal conception of our Lord. And the image here is this is a, a new creation. God is doing something new. Uh, Our Lady is, as it were, the new Garden of Eden in which God is now going to dwell and create create the new man. The first man, Adam, it didn't go right. So uh, God uh, offers this new goal, the new Adam, uh, who is placed in the new Garden of Eden, uh, the virginal body of of Mary. Um, So, one of the most interesting aspects of the the Incarnation is simply that it gives us the latitude to use our own experience of what what it means to be a human being to understand what God is doing. So, we know very little about our Lord's life before He was 30. Um, But most of us here are over 30. A couple of us are not yet. Uh, but even if you're not, you, you've been around long enough, you know what it's like to be a kid, to learn how to talk, to learn how to uh, learn your manners, to learn how to eat, learn how to take care of yourself, clean your room, uh, respect your parents, learn how to learn trade, learn how to uh, help with other people, you know, have a, a good set of relationships with people. God wants to share all of this with us from inside, you know, uh, including, now what I was going to say about all this, most of what I've said here traditionally is the province of the home and the head of the, the home, as it were, is the mother. And so this, the largest part of our Lord's life, he's subordinate to his mother. And uh, he's learning from her how to be human. So she has this remarkable influence. And uh, so we can look at our own experience and see how God has intended all of this, you know, all of our schooling, our home life, our, uh, how our bodies grow and change, uh, how we learn to do new things, how we're disappointed when things don't go the way we want. All of these things are part of what it means to be human and they're all good. You know, they're all intended by God. And he likes them so much that he wants to participate in it with us. And by doing this, he is uh, eventually, by sharing even in our death, he's going to offer us the possibility of sharing his divine life. Uh, so, 
If we look over uh, at John's gospel, we see a much more mystical idea of Our Lady. And in fact, she's frequently called woman. And this is really important because, as I said, Jesus is the new Adam. So things didn't go right in the garden. And man re remains a kind of work in process until we get the, the complete man, the end, the goal, which is Christ himself. He shows us what it means to be human. But just as Adam was uh, never, uh, he, it wasn't good for him to be alone in the garden. And so uh, his wife Eve is created. So we have in John's gospel, Mary referred to as woman. And uh, St. Irenaeus in the early third century will write a very influential work in which he says very explicitly that Mary is the new Eve. And uh, the resonances of the story of Eve's creation, first of all, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment because Mary also is connected very closely with the church. Um, but especially the way that Our Lady undoes <clears throat> the sin of Eve. So Eve sins by listening to the suggestions of the serpent uh, and saying yes, right? Uh, Mary undoes the sin of Eve by listening to Gabriel announce the word of God and saying yes, right? Uh, so it's a very common theme throughout church history that Mary conceives through the ear by, by hearing. And so she's a model for all of us because all of us uh, receive the divine life through baptism by hearing the word of God preached and saying yes in faith. And so by doing that, we conceive Christ in ourselves uh, by the Holy Spirit in baptism. And so we imitate Our Lady uh, who uh, broke this, uh, broke the bondage that we have with original sin by saying yes to God's invitation. <clears throat> Let me get back to my notes here. So Irenaeus uh, makes much of this, of Mary as the new Eve. And uh, I would say the next really important set of events, there are a couple of things that go together here in the late 4th and early 5th centuries uh, after the church comes out of hiding, as it were. Many traditions grew up about Our Lady after uh, the resurrection. The most common one is that she lived with the Apostle John at Ephesus. And John's gospel itself is a reflection of deep theological meditation on Mary's own memories and her experience of uh, being the mother of Christ, the mother of God. And uh, what happens after the church becomes legal, as it were, it's no longer being persecuted, uh, a couple of things happen. One is that the cult of saints begins to be more open and, and celebrated Sites of pilgrimage, especially in the Holy Land. Uh, we have Constantine's mother, Helena, going to the Holy Land and discovering the true cross. The sites where uh, the things that, uh, of the gospel took place become more important, sanctified by uh, cults of the faithful celebrating there. And uh, two locations come to be uh, recognized as particularly connected to Our Lady, extra-scriptural, so... Uh, Certainly the cave at Bethlehem uh, where uh, they stayed, uh, where she gave birth because there was no room in the inn there and they had to come from uh, Nazareth for the census uh, has always been 
an important pilgrimage site. But uh, Mary's tomb and the house at Ephesus where she lived with John became pilgrimage sites. Now, in, in Catholic theology, this idea of Mary's tomb uh, is a little puzzling for some, and uh, the Catholic Church has never officially defined whether Mary died, uh, though the general preponderance of evidence says yes in league with the Eastern tradition, which is that Mary fell asleep in the Lord, sinless, and because she was sinless, death had no hold on her, and so her body was taken into heaven immediately. Uh, and I mentioned the cult of the saints. Something that I have found very interesting over time is that when you ask about, say, uh, Father Timothy mentioned the transitus of St. Benedict. So we know where St. Benedict is buried. There's actually some dispute about it because his relics have been moved a few times uh, because Monte Cassino has been destroyed by Saracens and, and everybody else, including the allies uh, in World War II. But we can say these, you know, these are the remains of St. Benedict and we can venerate them. But there is not a, a corresponding cult of the remains of the Virgin Mary, <coughs> right? There's her tomb, but there are no remains in there. There are no bones in there, right? So from a very early date, there was this, knowledge in the church that uh, th there are even some traditions that she suffered a martyr's death, by the way. Uh, this is a very um, minor tradition in the early church. But nonetheless, there was never any veneration of uh, relics associated with the body of the Virgin Mary. It was, it was, uh, it's universally been taught that her body was assumed into heaven. The second thing that happens around this time, so we first get written statements about this, uh, in the early 5th century. The second thing that's going on, probably more familiar to many of you, is the lead-up to the Council of Ephesus in 431. What happened here is very interesting because this is a great illustration of the census fidei, you know, the sensitivity, sensibilities of the faithful. Um, there, was a, there were a group of people, there was a group of people in Constantinople uh, who were invoking Our Lady as Theotokos, as the God-bearer, uh, the one who gave birth to God. Uh, normally this is translated again into English as Mother of God. There are several different Latin versions of this title. And occasionally, even in Latin, you get Theotokos. The patriarch at the time was a man named Nestorius, and he, he took issue with this title, Theotokos, and he said, uh, it would be better if you said Christotokos. Uh, she's the bearer of the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, because he felt that uh, God couldn't have a mother. This is being slightly unfair to Nestorius. You know how scholars are these days. They question everything. So there's the received narrative about Nestorius uh, that he splits the divine and human natures of Christ in such a way that uh, it, it causes problems for theology. And therefore, he's deposed at the Council of Ephesus etc., etc. Contemporary scholars are trying to rehabilitate Nestorius in various ways. Um, there were those who stuck with Nestorius throughout the centuries, and so when Marco Polo goes to China, uh, he finds Nestorian Christians there. <laughs> so, but in any case, the, the traditional interpretation in the Orthodox and Catholic churches is that Nestorius uh, 
was uneasy about calling Mary the mother of God because God being uncreated can't have a mother, supposedly. And so we have to say she's the mother of the Christ, the human nature of Christ, but she's not the mother of his divine nature. At the Council of Ephesus, the church fathers said, no, in fact, she's the mother of both natures. Okay? And this, I mean, among other ways we can interpret this, is that God's humility is such that uh, he desires to have a mother. And this is part of what it means to be human, is that you have a mother. Uh, If he didn't enter the world through a mother, uh, he'd be something of a phantom, you know? His his human nature would be somehow compromised. Because how else do you get into the world other than being conceived and growing in your mother's womb and then being born? That's how it works, uh, unless you're Adam or Eve. Uh, but uh, so God deigns, condescends, or we might say, to have a mother. Uh, he, he wants this intimacy with his mother, you know. Uh, and it is, his, it is his divine nature. It's troubling in some ways just because it's so hard to get our minds around God's humility. Uh, if, if we had the omnipotence and omniscience that, that God has we would probably be super proud of it because it would be, it would be sort of what we would hope we could get now, but, uh, uh, but we're just human, you know? We, we don't know everything. We can't be everywhere at once. But for God, this is not something that, uh, you know, he uh, particularly lords over us, you know? Uh, he's attracted to the human race. You know, God, God desires the human race. And uh, it's precisely because of our smallness and our, our, our weakness. And he wants to enter into that and participate in it. So he doesn't lord it over us. And therefore he is okay with having a mother. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, the virgin birth was not the first sort of uh, story about a person coming into the world in an unusual fashion. There are lots of stories of heroes and gods who... Uh, you know, are, are born in, in strange ways. And this is an indication usually of how powerful and dangerous they are. <laughs> but in, in God's case, it's, it's a demonstration of God's gentleness. Uh, and he's going to, and you know, this is too. Again, uh, Jesus at any time could have called myriad angels down and smote all those soldiers and, and uh, you know, who would doubt him then? And instead, he actually went the road of human beings. And, um, you know, he had to die at some point. Might as well be here uh, uh, as an innocent victim. Uh, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't uh, reject this as somehow unworthy of God. Right? So in the same way, he doesn't reject being a baby as being unworthy of God. Or, uh, you know, trying to learn how to walk and falling over as unworthy of God. Uh, the, the only difference is his will, Christ's will and Our Lady's will, they want what God wants. Okay, and that's the, that's the difference between uh, the mother of God, the son of God, and us in our unregenerate human uh, nature. Is that we often want things that God doesn't want. <laughs> right, so we're at odds with God, and so our our goal is to be conformed to Christ and to His Mother. Um, 
So, the Council of Ephesus, as I said in 431, is the key uh, council for understanding Mariology, if we want to use that word. And the key thing, again, is that Mary is the mother of both the human and the divine nature of Christ. She is the mother of God. Uh, And from this, we can then uh, unpack all kinds of things about her uh, worthiness, the meaning of her virginity, the meaning of her sinlessness, and so on. She is the mother of the body of Christ. I want to unpack this a little bit. So Christ's body comes from Our Lady. We would today say, you know, uh, Jesus' DNA is 100% derived from his mother. (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe the Holy Spirit altered it in some way. But uh, the the key thing is that uh, the body of Christ is both this historical thing, but as I said at the very beginning, history is never simply history. It's always a revelation of God in some way. If you have faith, if you know how to read it, if we, if we look with the eyes given to us by the Holy Spirit. And so this same body is the body we receive in Holy Communion. And it is the same body that we make up together. And it, uh, we are members of this body. And therefore, Mary is our mother. Uh, she is so through the instrument of the church which I'm, I'm almost there to talk about the connection between Our Lady and the church, which is really important. Um, but the thing I want to emphasize here is that, well, as I said at the very beginning about our community history, Our Lady is a really powerful intercessor. intercessor. She cares for each of you the way your mother cares for you, actually even more, because uh, our mothers are still in the process of... Uh, being purified, whereas Our Lady is the queen of the universe and sinless. So uh, whatever love you think of, you think of motherly love. I mean, again, this is just such an important revelation. Um, Father Brennan and I were talking about, (laughs) this is how nerdy we are. We were talking yesterday about the Peloponnesian War and um, (laughs) about how barbaric, you know, uh, human beings can be to one another how it was typical in those days. Um, the Athenians were a pretty enlightened people back in the day, uh, but when uh, one of their uh, colonies would defy them in some way, it was not uncommon uh, to kill all the men and enslave the women and the children, right? This was very common practice in the ancient world. And uh, this is a kind of world where power, uh, ruthlessness, uh, strength, military prowess is what matters. And if mothers are, are crying because their husbands or their sons have been put to death and their children have been enslaved, well, that's just how it goes. I know it's, uh, uh, these are, this is the reality of this world. God comes into this world and says, that's not my reality. That's not the world I created. Uh, In this world, the one that I intended, God says, the love of a mother is exactly the, you know, it's right at the heart of what it means to be human. Mothers have, uh, you know, this this tenderness, this care, this concern for their children. And each of us has this 
adopted mother in heaven. And again, whatever beautiful things you can say about your own mother's love apply to Our Lady and, and in an even greater way. Uh, I, I remember when I was a, a much younger man, uh, just, just coming into adulthood, and um, I was at a, a party of some kind, and uh, the host family, they just had their first child, so there's this little baby crawling around the backyard, we're having a cookout, and it was just so fascinating to watch uh, my, my women friends, like, like, figure out exactly what to do with this baby, you know, like, they knew, like, how to be nice to it and, and take care of it and everything. And all the guys were sort of standing around with their hands in their pockets like, yeah, oh, it's great you have a kid, you know? And there's this, uh, this, this affinity, this, this solicitude. Uh, and this is, again, this mirrors God's solicitude for us, but he gives us, uh, I should really, I should mention we've got a nice uh, icon of Our Lady over here. Um, he's, he gives us, you know, he says to the beloved disciple from the cross, behold your mother. And she has that kind of solicitude for us, you know. She knows ahead of time what we need, just like these, these uh, women friends of mine knew what this baby needed before I did. Even, uh, I still don't know. <laughs> um, uh, I, I've gotten a little better because my, my sisters have had kids and I've had a chance to uh, spend time with them, but you don't see a lot of babies when you're a monk, you know, so uh, I, I've not really had an opportunity to figure any of that out. So this follows again that Mary is our mother because she's the mother of the body of Christ and we are members of the body of Christ. And this comes about through the church. So one of the helpful things Irenaeus suggests already back in the third century, and it becomes a truism of understanding Mary and the church is that whatever you can say about Mary in particular, you can say about the church in general and vice versa, because the church is our mother. We are born, uh, we are born from the divine spirit through baptism at the font at the entrance of the church. It's our gateway into the body of Christ. Uh, the font is a womb. Uh, from which we emerge as sons and daughters of God, as members of the body of Christ. The church has the same solicitude for us that Mary does. Uh, the, the church buildings can be seen as a kind of uh, uh, way into a relationship with Our Lady. I was thinking about this recently. I was at a very beautiful church and I thought uh, the way we outfit our churches reflects what we think heaven is like. Um, so we used to, uh, we might have to edit this from my talk, but we used, to, we used to build churches where there were lots of arches and statues and icons and pictures and beautiful things and pillars that represented the apostles. And now we tend to make them functional so we see people in them. And uh, it's not that we won't see people in heaven, but the difficulty is we, we tend again to see each other in the historical reality of the moment where what we want to see is the spiritual reality behind who we are. And it helps to see the saints, you know, and the angels. And uh, when I was, I was at this church, I was watching the faithful. There were several people walking around and praying to all the different saints represented in the statues and so on, going past the tabernacle, genuflecting, et cetera, et cetera. 
And you see that heaven is just completely populated with all kinds of beautiful stuff, <laughs> beautiful spiritual stuff, I should say. And uh, when we remove that, we, we, we somewhat, uh, we, we make heaven less uh, desirable. And uh, as I often tell the brothers, uh, it's really important that we desire heaven, we think about it, we meditate on it as if it's our long lost home uh, so that when it's time to go home, we don't resist. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't say, not yet, God, uh, but we're ready to go to heaven. Um, so, uh, but if we, if we make heaven uh, empty, except for like some clouds and a harp and a white robe, um, then my fear is that we're going to say, well, it's better for me to go to heaven because I don't want to go to hell. I definitely don't want that. But uh, it's so much more boring compared to my life here. I, I, I'm not ready to go yet. And in fact, it's going to be much nicer than what our life is here for all kinds of reasons. Um, and again, it's because everything that we love about our human lives is going to be revealed for the spiritual, uh, in, its spiritual depth and reality. And so everything we loved about our families uh, will be revealed to sort of show us what the real family of Christ looks like. Uh, everything we loved about our parents will be revealed to show us uh, what our true Father in Heaven is like and what our Mother, the Church, is like. So the last connection in this is that just as Mary and the Church occupies the, the sort of uh, interpenetrating uh, theological realities, we also say the same about it, the individual soul, uh, that the soul is a kind of bride of Christ. So the Church is presented as a bride without spot or wrinkle. It is sinless in the way that the Virgin Mary is sinless. The soul after baptism is presented as a kind of bride to Christ. It is sinless after baptism uh, and uh, so partakes of all of these realities, but now of a bridal image. Uh, that's another a wonderful sort of human reality, uh, weddings. Uh, today, unfortunately, again, they... These days, it seems like when I was younger again, I remember weddings, people were saying, yeah, they're just going to be $10,000, $15,000. I bet they're a lot more than that now, if you're not careful. There's lots and lots of stuff that goes on with weddings. But uh, what I'd like to say about that that's key for this in understanding Our Lady's role and the role of the individual soul, that there's something exceedingly beautiful about two people coming together uh, committing to one another, you don't know the future, committing to the possibility of having children and raising those children with whatever's going to happen with those children. We get lots and lots of prayer requests of sick children and so on, prematurely born children. Uh, you, you feel their parents' concern, their love. Uh, you feel the parents struggling to stick with each other, support one another and so on. Uh, so this, this is this great beauty. And then at the end of life, when, you know, uh, couples have, have been faithful to one another, have gone through their struggles, get to this place where they just belong to one another. They're inseparable. You know, even if one dies, the other one is... I, I gave a talk to a group of uh, widows and widowers some years ago. And uh, when your spouse dies, it's like half of you is already in heaven. You know, and, and so you're divided in one way, but in another way, one sort of automatically becomes a contemplative because... You know, where my life is, is with God now in a much clearer way than uh, when my spouse was here. Uh, so the pain that we feel, that pain of separation, 
is drawing us to our final home. So this is a very beautiful process, and it's very, very human. It's in every culture. Uh, cultures celebrate weddings differently. They, they arrange the family differently. There are many different... Uh, I thought this was one of the uh, pities of the, the, the synod on the family, is that uh, the media, and to some extent the reports that came out of the synod, uh, didn't dwell on the rich different expressions of family life that you see in many cultures throughout the world. Uh, there's a tendency to, to sort of focus overly on the nuclear family in the West rather than seeing that another aspect of this is when the uh, husband and wife come together, it's their whole, their whole families are, are brought together and there's a kind of, there's a hope for a, a larger reconciliation, a larger social unit between these two families who are now uh, connected to each other in this way. Um, one of my sisters, uh, her uh, husband is from a very large extended family. Uh, his father is Lebanese, and so uh, they uh, have a fairly old fashioned kind of extended family experience and so on. And uh, it's amazing. I mean, uh, if, you know, in some ways, you want to get something done, you've got all these possibilities. You know, you're connected to all these people now. Similarly, with my, my stepfather, is uh, from a very large uh, Irish German family in rural Wisconsin. And it's similar. I mean, this now, my mother's family has all these connections that she didn't have before, you know. So, now, all this is to say that this human reality, again, is used by God as a way of showing that he wants his resources to be ours. You know? Christ seeks out a bride and finds the church. And by wedding the church, marrying the church, the divine, all the riches of the divine life, the spiritual realities of, of God's heavenly hosts, there are resources now. And uh, all of uh, our human family is part of God's family now. You know, we're all connected. Uh, each of us at the level of our, our soul. God desires to uh, have this spiritual consent from us to share everything about his life with us and to share everything about our lives with him. Uh, and again, I'll just say from experience of working with married couples, knowing married couples, having siblings that are married. Um, one of the things that happens in a, a marriage is that however much you prepare at the beginning, try to be as honest and upfront about who you are and what your limitations are so that your, your potential spouse is ready to deal with you. Um, other things are going to come up, you know, other weaknesses, other experiences we had that we forgot to mention. Why didn't you tell me that uh, this, I, I never thought of it, it was so long ago, or whatever. Maybe there are things we're just embarrassed about, we're not sure we can share with a spouse. Uh, we, maybe we can hide it forever. Um, and then you realize, nope, <laughs> that won't work. Uh, my past history is now part of my spouse's history. That's simply how it is. And that can be a painful thing sometimes to admit to, say, sins that we've committed, uh, previous relationships we had, things we had done wrong. Um, and we have to work through that now with another person. And it, it's a purifying experience 
for the person who goes through this. This happens in, in monastic community too, you know. Uh, we, ha we have to be purified of all the things that we brought into the monastery with us. So as we go through this, uh, uh, it's, again, the goal is uh, to work through for, with forgiveness, patience, understanding, humility, reliance on that initial act of commitment, faith that God will make this work, that eventually all those things are, we see them as part of a narrative of salvation and redemption. So our previous sins can be redeemed, forgiven, and we can become new persons. But now, new persons who are fundamentally uh, connected to a spouse. So similarly with our souls, when we uh, are baptized, we'd like it if we could uh, just forget all the sins that we had before baptism and they wouldn't affect us anymore and we could just start afresh. And we do in one sense, but in another sense, and Christ wants to share all of that with us and redeem it. And that requires us to be honest with him about it, right? To, to, to say, yes, this is who I am, all my limitations, my human weaknesses, my aspirations, my disappointments, my grouchiness, whatever it is, uh, Christ is, uh, approaches us as a kind of spouse to that uh, anima within, the, that, that feminine part of ourselves that needs his direction. And this will eventually help us to heal uh, even things that uh, we, we would rather not deal with, you know, that we, we th thought we were over. Uh, and as I say, this is revealed to us in a certain way through the reality of Mary as bride of Christ, Mary as bride of the Holy Spirit, that these, this human reality of marriage can help us to understand the relationship between the human and the divine. Um, in the last 15 minutes, I'm going to take a couple of the images that were in this litany and explain them and uh, hopefully, uh, again, deepen and enrich your understanding of these mysteries. Seed of wisdom. Uh, so wisdom in Greek is the word Sophia. It's a feminine word. Uh, Greek has gendered nouns, like many languages. We don't have it so much in English. Um, and in the, the Book of Wisdom, which is written in Greek, uh, the Wisdom of Solomon, it's possibly, according to biblical scholars, it's, it's quite possibly the last written book of the Old Testament. So though it's attributed to Solomon, it's probably written in uh, Greek-speaking Egypt in the first century before Christ, based on Solomon's reputation as a wise man and a great thinker. Um, wisdom, though, is in this book is kind of hypostatized, is made into a person. And... Uh, uh, because Sophia is a feminine noun, it's a feminine person, it's a woman. And Solomon seeks her as a bride. It's very clear again. Um, and what the church eventually sees, there's a couple of things in this. One is that uh, Solomon is a kind of type of Christ. And again, seeking his bride, he is seeking this, the, 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 uh, the wise woman who is wisdom, 
who is particularly uh, represented in the last chapter of the book of Proverbs, another wisdom book, this time one that's written uh, quite a bit earlier and in Hebrew originally. But there's this wonderful chapter. Um, again, it's, it's so unlike what you get in, in uh, say, pagan Greek literature from about the same time. The celebration of you know, the valiant woman who knows how to run a household. Uh, and the connection between this woman and the figure of wisdom is very close. Uh, wisdom helps us to understand how things are connected to each other, how to plan prudently for things and so on. And eventually all of these things come together in the Virgin Mary, who again is without sin and therefore uh, consents to God's will, understands how God has uh, allotted things and cooperates with them in a wise way. So first and foremost, maybe not foremost, but first of all, uh, Our Lady is understood as wisdom and many readings in the liturgies having to do with Our Lady's feast days borrow from the Book of Wisdom. And it's, it's very handy because uh, with the feminine pronouns, she, her, etc., uh, we can read almost one-to-one -one that this is about Mary. However, she is also called the seed of wisdom. And in fact, uh, the, the statue we have uh, in our church is one of the depictions of this because Christ himself is the wisdom of God. Uh, he is the logos, the, the logic, the reasoning of God. So the way all things are distributed in the world makes sense once you know Christ because Christ is the reason for all these things. And um, uh, when he is seated on our, our lady's lap and the two of them uh, present themselves as our protectors and guardians, uh, she is the throne of wisdom. Uh, our, our Lord... Uh, not only lived for nine months in her womb, uh, but was suckled at her breasts, lay on her lap. Uh, she is the throne of wisdom. And wisdom, again, is, uh, is not the wisdom of the world. It's the wisdom of the cross. It's the simple, uh, uh, guileless wisdom of the children uh, who receive new life at baptism. We, we read about this in the first letter of St. Peter. Uh, it's that, that wisdom of those who uh, desire to be simple rather than uh, complicated the way the world is. So, uh, the Song of Songs is another really important book for understanding the theology of Our Lady. I would say Mariology, but it just sound, it sounds so technical, you know. Uh, but that's, that is the technical word. I should mention, Our, Our Lady's name is uh, taken from Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron, who uh, uh, sang a famous song with all the women after God's defeat of the Egyptians at the Red Sea. Uh, and uh, still a very common Jewish name today, Miriam. And we get Mary from the, the Greek version of the name and then eventually the Latin version. Um, so the Song of Songs has many different, uh, again, it's a, it's a bridal poem. Uh, 
I, I would even venture to say it's a, quite an erotic poem. So it's a celebration of married love, especially conjugal love. And uh, there was some question in uh, the, early, the early rabbis debated a lot about whether the Song of Songs should be included in the Hebrew scriptures uh, because uh, God doesn't really show up in it, you know? And uh, I, I won't go into the debate. They ultimately decided to include it. And one of the reasons is that already by the time of Christ, it's almost certain that the rabbis were reading this as an allegory of God's love for Israel. Okay, so the bridal imagery in this is God's chosen people, Israel, and God is the groom. And God woos Israel. We see this in Hosea and elsewhere. Uh, that God uh, has this, 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 uh, um, this longing, you know, for this people who've been enslaved in Egypt, this people who is, is not always faithful to him, you know. Uh, and so after one episode of infidelity, uh, God says to the prophet Hosea, he's going to lure Israel out into the desert and sort of court her again, right? He's going to uh, remind her of the good old days when they were in love, as it were. So this imagery, Hosea is a very early prophet. He's in the eighth century, maybe even a little earlier than that. BC. So when the Song of Songs is being debated by the rabbis, they have this tradition in biblical reading and in the prophets of God as the groom and Israel as the bride. And so this very easily again slips into a Christological reading in which uh, the new Israel, the church, is the bride and Christ, the son of God, is the groom. And so all of the details that are in this are uh, interpreted allegorically as relating, first of all, to Christ and the church, but then also to Christ and Mary. And this is where we get um, things like mystical rose, for instance, when we call Mary mystical rose. Uh, she is understood as the new Garden of Eden, as I mentioned at the very beginning. So uh, one of the things that the uh, groom says about the bride is that she is a garden enclosed. And so the idea is uh, he's appreciating the beauty uh, of this woman whom he is courting, uh, and she is sealed off from other men. She belongs to him alone, a garden enclosed. Uh, only he is uh, allowed the delights of the relationship with her. And so Mary, uh, herself being a virgin, betrothed to one husband, uh, God through the Holy Spirit, is this new Garden of Eden. And uh, the image of the rose is mentioned several times as well in the Song of Songs. And so through a long process of allegorical reading, Our Lady becomes the mystical rose. It's an image, actually, interestingly enough, that uh, uh, Dante uses at the very top of heaven to describe uh, the communion of saints, the church, as a mystical rose, all these petals sort of interwoven with each other. And again, we see how there's a very close connection between the church and Our Lady. Uh, 
How about, yeah, Tower of David, this also comes, this is a direct quote from Song of Songs, uh, symbolizing a kind of uh, noble strength, noble purity. Um, Tower of Ivory, Ivory is a symbol of purity, uh, etc. Ark of the Covenant is an interesting one. It's, it's pretty clear, I think, in as much as, again, when our Lord is uh, in gestation in the womb, he is lying in his ark the way God rested in his ark uh, in, uh, uh, in the Old Testament. Yes. And was what uh, was contained in the ark were the tablets of the law, yeah. I think the staff of Aaron, and the, the jar of manna. In the That's day. correct, yeah. Yeah. Right, so the law, Christ is the end of the law, the goal of the law. Um, the staff of Moses is, uh, as we're sort of God's arm working the uh, wonders, and the manna is the Eucharist, <laughs> right? So Christ is all those things and is mystically in the Ark of the Covenant, but truly, really, as in Rez, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Who's the new Ark, the real Ark of the Covenant. And I should say the Ark of the Covenant, the covenant is a really important word. Uh, marriage is a covenant, right? So the Ark of the Covenant is precisely that thing which witnessed, was testimony to the dwelling of God with Israel. And Mary is that testimony to God's dwelling with man. She's the Ark of the Covenant uh, who reminds us of this marital relationship that uh, humanity enjoys through her. Is that what you... I was just thinking of, yes. Okay. And I was also thinking of a couple of um, churches like Our Lady of Walsingham, the Anglican yeah. Ordinary. If I remember correctly, um, the tabernacle is the likeness of the Ark of the Covenant. I think Mary's name is in Hebrew. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very common in, in Catholic churches, uh, especially in, in recent centuries, to, to draw this connection between the Ark and Our Lady very clearly. Um, sometimes you'll even see uh, this, this where, where was this? It was recently that there was a monstrance built that actually showed Our Lady and then the, the uh, Eucharist was placed where the womb would be. Um, that's, it's, it's an unusual image, it's not traditional, but it makes sense in a way, right? Uh, gate of heaven. So Jacob, when he lays down on that rock and anoints it and he has this vision of this ladder going up to heaven, says, wow, what a terrible place this is, meaning terrifying or awesome. Uh, and uh, this is truly the gate of heaven, right? And uh, so the gate of heaven is where there is this um, commerce between heaven and earth. And again, Our Lady is precisely the place where God entered into our physical world. And it's through the church that we enter into the divine world. So Mary represents that, that new gate of heaven, as it were. Um, and I, I mentioned this word commerce, which sounds a little uh, perhaps capitalist or something like that. But uh, one of the great antiphons for the Feast of the Mother of God is, O admirabile commerci. Right? So a wondrous exchange, right? Uh, the creator of the world becomes man that we might become divine, right? 
so, and it, how does he become man? Through his mother, through the mother of God. So she is the gate of heaven, the place where this exchange and, and commerce takes place. The last thing I want to say is just a little bit about the, the rosary, how it came to be, and its efficacy, and how I think as oblates we can understand it. Um, one of the brothers told me about a dream he had uh, this past week in which uh, he was looking down at a spring that was bubbling up. And for some reason he knew that the spring was 150 uh, feet deep. And we're talking about it a little bit, and I didn't think of this originally. We we're talking about what the stream might mean, and so, et cetera. And he said, but why is it 150 feet? I said, because there are 150 songs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 150 is an important number, and um, St. Benedict says we should pray all 150 psalms every week. And uh, in the Middle Ages, one of the tricks about monastic life, uh, universally, east and west, everywhere, is that having a monastic community, there's always a certain amount of reliance on outside support. It's, it's almost impossible for monasteries to be truly self-supporting. Uh, the burden of the, the prayer is usually too much, and so it's important that others uh, contribute in various ways. Um, this would be through land grants, uh, rents that would be given by the emperor, for example, in the east. Uh, this also happened in the west. Charle uh, yeah, Charlemagne set up a number of monasteries. When I say land grants, what I mean by that is the monastery owned the land, and then the serfs who worked the land would pay, would keep a certain amount for themselves and the rest of the produce would be sold and the proceeds would go to the owner of the land. Uh, and the monasteries would make their money this way. So St. Benedict already knew about this and he says if the brothers themselves have to do the harvest, they shouldn't be sad if they don't have enough serfs to do the work. Um, now, why am I telling you all this? Because the Cistercian solution to this uh, was to have brothers in the community who were called lay brothers and they didn't pray the office. They prayed the little office of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, it was, in various ways, a substitution for the 150 Psalms, which the choir monks would pray. So there were monks who spent their day in choir. And then there were others uh, who were lay brothers who would pray a substitute for the 150 Psalms. Over time, uh, this substitution, there, there were various mysteries that were connected to Hail Marys, which replaced the Psalms. And uh, what happened is you get 15 mysteries of the rosary. Uh, a lot the, there were 10 Hail Marys said with each mystery. So 10 times 15 is 150. Then uh, Pope John Paul added five more mysteries and a, a priest, a curmudgeonly <laughs> priest friend of mine says, what, do we have to write? 50 more psalms now? <laughs> uh, but in any case, uh, <coughs> rosary came to be uh, a replacement for the divine office and the liturgy proper for those who had lives that didn't permit them to be at the office, to, pr to pray the full office. And uh, now, I would just say it's the, you know, centuries-long witness of the Catholic Church that the rosary is a wonderfully efficacious prayer, a reminder of the mysteries, the revealed mysteries of God in the life of Christ, mediated in some way by Our Lady, who sort of was there for these things. She saw, the, she saw with her own eyes our Lord's death and resurrection and so on, and so can 
teach us what happened, teach us how to understand it. Uh, and the goal ultimately, so I would definitely recommend this if you can fit it in your schedule. What we wanna do is fi find a way then to remind ourselves how it connects back to the liturgy, which is the real font of the church's life. Um, and uh, I'll just say one of these days, I, I'm hoping that I'll have the, the time or maybe the assistant in the monastery to, to write a book on this. I'd like to write, you know, you, you get sometimes these books like How to Pray the Rosary and they give you little helpful scriptural quotations to meditate on for the different mysteries. Well, in fact, beyond the scriptural meditations, we have entire days devoted to these mysteries in the Catholic Church, you know. Sometimes octaves devoted to them. And so there's, there are many, 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 many texts to uh, meditate on. All we need to do is gather them up and put them in a book and say, here, when you meditate on the agony in the garden, here are five pages of liturgical texts you can think about. And you'll remi be reminded that if you can't be at the monastery on Good Friday or on Holy Thursday, and we're praying these texts, you can be connected with us through your prayer of the rosary. Uh, so anyway, you can pray for me that I have time to finish my book. <laughs> my, one of like five books, I, I keep thinking it'd be great to write if God grants me the time and, and freedom. Uh, so I'll stop there. Uh, that's my presentation for this morning, but we have about five or 10 minutes for questions or thoughts on any of this today. I wanna thank uh, Michael for suggesting the topic. I don't think I've ever given a talk on Mary before, so. But thank you all for listening. Any questions?